Just wanted to leave a little bit of an editor's note for this episode. I had a very long conversation with Marina Treese, who is a very intelligent human being, very well-spoken, and has a lot of interesting experiences and perspectives to offer. The problem with talking to somebody like that is trying to do so in a condensed format is nearly impossible. So in editing the episode, I decided to cut this and drop this in two parts. The first one will be when I was questioning Marina, and the second part will be when she turned the tables and began throwing questions my way. Just seemed like the best place to split it. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Hunter Farmer Artisan Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Garrett. Today, I am very excited for our guest, Maria Stearns-Treese with Access Sustainability, LLC. Welcome to the podcast, Marina. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I know I keep dropping the N off your name, and that is a complete lack of coffee, not a lack of respect for what you're doing, because I'm really excited <laughs> no to have you here. <laughs> no worries. No worries. And it's been a couple of days, but I wanted to have you on the show today because you actually have done a lot of the boots on the ground conservation work that I think is so valuable to the story of hunting. And it's also very valuable to protecting hunting long term. And as I've been trying to emphasize on my show, there's so many different avenues for people to go to in order to get involved and protect hunting over multiple generations. And I think this is an important one, and I think you have a lot of good to say on that. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, let's just introduce you and who you are, how you got into hunting, because I think it's a pretty cool story. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Marina Treese, and I grew up actually as a Pacific Northwest native. I'm from a small island in Puget Sound, and uh, I grew up in the outdoors. You know, I actually am a late onset hunter. I've only been hunting for about the last 10 years or so. But uh, around 2011, you know, life had happened, and I ended up moving out to uh, Maui in the Hawaiian Islands, and that really started my hunting journey. You know, I grew up in kind of a environmentalist type background with my family. My mom was in um, urban planning and environmental impact statements and things like that. And uh, my dad on the other side of it was in uh, commercial business, but he also introduced me a lot to the outdoors. And so having that background and moving to Hawaii kind of gave me this basis for starting to live off of the land. You know, what things can I do uh, to cut down on my footprint as an individual and also learn resourcefulness, you know, and maybe on a bit of a, uh, you know, a level of, of selfishness, it was kind of apocalypse prep, you know, what do you need to do in order to be able to, uh, to survive? And what does that look like? And I think it opened up a journey for me to an intrinsic part of, of who I am, which is connecting to the land and knowing where your food comes from and what kind of things you can do in order to be able to, to nurture that long term. So. I started doing a bunch of gardening stuff and I started getting into archery. I got a bow put in my hand and uh, really enjoyed that time out in the woods, just learning nature, being surrounded by the animals, figuring out how to be quiet, figuring out what it means to get busted. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, that that's happened to me yesterday. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely a big thing. Also, you know, it 
opened the door for me to finish a degree that I ended up getting as a bachelor's of, of applied science and sustainable science management. What that looked like was, uh, you know, long term, how do you how do you work with the environment and also be a hunter and also be able to provide food security and be able to have a way of working with the land where you're not detracting from it and you're also being able to have subsistence, a subsistence lifestyle indefinitely. So, you know, in doing that in Hawaii, we have axis deer out there and they're an invasive species and they're also a food source. So it creates a very unique conundrum. And being from islands in general, it's a really unique approach to geographic isolation. You know, growing up on a tiny little island and then also living in Maui, it gives you almost a control an ability to look at land and ecosystems from a place of saying, okay, so these are the resources we have here. They're somewhat limited, you know, Hawaii, especially because of the geographic isolation so far out. But, you know, what does it look like to actually be able to have a lifestyle where you're harvesting your own food and in perpetuity for generations to come because we don't want to extract so much that there's nothing left for the future? And so it kind of uh, opened this door for me to be able to start my own businesses. And I currently have uh, three LLC or three businesses under the LLC of Access Sustainability. One of them is for the subsistence consulting and conservation consulting for Access. The second is for Mountain Wanderers Designs, which is the second part of hunting and harvesting. It's utilizing the things that you harvest in an ethical and resourceful way. And then my third business, which had kind of been my bread and butter and now is somewhat transitioning out is um, in horsemanship. I've worked with horses out in nature for a long time. So kind of incorporate all of those things together to, to be self-employed. And that's where I am now. Yeah, none of those things are time consuming. <laughs> no, helpful. not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I have the... like to keep me busy. <laughs> I, I have a, a similar problem in that I'm running several different businesses and people are always like, well, you know, how do you do that? Like, I don't sleep a lot. That's, yeah, that's yeah. just what I cut out. Who needs it's it? It's true. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny. I, I do actually really want to talk to you about the leatherworks piece of your business because I know that yeah. ever since I got into hunting, one of the things that I realized a lot more, and, and I too got into it, you know, much later as an adult, and I came in, into it from like the perspective of an avid chef. I was just looking for the best awesome. ingredients that I could get. And, you know, I wanted more and more control over those ingredients. And I was trying to source them as ethically as possible. And as I got into hunting, I, I started to realize and I started to do a lot of research on just how much waste there is when it comes to various animals when they are harvested and just food waste in general, too. If you look at the FDA statistics, it's just millions and millions yeah. of pounds of waste every yeah. single year. And I always think of that in terms of, you know, loss of life when it comes to wildlife conflicts with ag agricultural crops and loss of life directly through, you know, meat production. And I've always kind of since I've become a hunter really advocated that you should be utilizing as much of the animal as possible, because when you take direct responsibility for that animal's life, same goes for farming and gardening, you really make it a point to make sure that that gets used in some way. 
Yeah. And I love that you're kind of taking that. I've always thought about it in terms of utilizing as much of the edible parts of the, the animal, but you take that to another level level and you work with all of it, the hide and everything. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's uh, you know, I appreciate that approach for sure, because I think, you know, when we go to the grocery store, for example, you know, and you pick up meat from the store, you are you, the process is very dissociated, right? You don't know where that animal came from. You don't know what other parts are there, et cetera. And for me, I knew as soon as I was going to harvest an animal or, or try to, you know, of course, it took a few years to make that happen initially. But, you know, as I was going to harvest an animal. I went, what am I going to do with all the pieces here? You know, I don't want there to be waste. As you mentioned, I think there's a lot. It's just you see, I mean, even in the islands, you see people that will just take out the back straps and take the rack and then they leave the rest of the animal. And, you know, to me, I'm like, man, especially in places like here where we only have a couple of tags. And so you only have a certain amount that you can use. You know, in Hawaii with the access deer, it's like take as many as you can because there's so many right now. Yeah, you got kind of an invasive species (laughs) thing. So there's a little bit different of a management mindset there too yeah. so i think the mindset changes because it yeah. would be easy for me as somebody who's used to the tag allocations for a native species to judge yeah. those people for that and i don't think that's right i think that yeah. we need to look at the the social and ecological context of where we are when yeah. we make those those judgments yeah yeah and you know in order to be able to as a as a hunter or somebody coming in with a sustainability background, I said, in order to really look at what sustainability as a whole looks like, it's a circular system. Everything is connected, right? So, so say in your garden, you're talking about from a chef perspective, I also love and have a passion for cooking and especially with the wild game meat. And so I'm like, okay, so we grow a garden, we get these things from the garden, we harvest the meat. After we're done with that, then we compost those pieces that goes back into the soil, the animals, you know, we've got pets and stuff. So some of the bones, you know, we'll roast for soups and things. Other will leave raw and freeze them and give them to the animals. I'll take uh, one of my favorite, one of my girlfriends taught me actually, who is a hunter is to use the call fat from around the organs. Amazing for meatballs and things like that. You know, it adds, especially for lean meat, like venison, it adds that extra little bit of fat around them, you know, not chalky or anything delicious. And then I went, okay, now I have the hide. What am I going to do with this? And the first one, I had no idea. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. But I tried to go out there, you know, and figure it out. And through the process of that hide, it ended up turning out beautifully. You know, it was like about a year-long process because I didn't really know. I left it for a while and the hair slipped. And then I turned it out and made it into leather. And it ended up being a really cool piece. I had friends that helped me with it. But in learning, it teaches you, oh, okay, some things work, some things don't. And then, you know, once that process is done, you see a lot of canneries that are willing to do mounts, shoulder mounts, or, you know, they'll do rugs and things like that. But then I went, okay, what other things can I do as a conversation piece? You know, what can I do that's going to start to open the conversation for people to be engaged? Because I think that's what a lot of conservation work is, right? And even the things that you're doing and the people that you're bringing on is really opening up the ability for people to have a voice to say oh hey you got this piece like what did you do to make this what is the story behind this how are these animals impacting you know the ecosystems in hawaii or you know for example here we have you know deer and elk that are in the freezer right now that i'll be tanning here soon and you know same same thing like 
okay, where did these animals come from? What have they been eating? Like, what kind of things can I learn from this? And how is that going to help future generations be able to have the ability to still hunt and harvest and have the ecosystems that we have? Yeah, I agree. I think those conversations around the table are really, really vital. I know that when I got my 2020 bear, I tried to feed that bear to as many people as I could in my community. Yeah. Yeah. Because I wanted to make sure that people understood what that was, what that hunt was about. Because among other things, it was a pivotal part of my life. Mm -hmm. it, it really set a lot of my ideas and ideals about hunting. It was a several year long pursuit to make that happen. So, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to share that with people I love, but I also wanted people to understand how valuable that meat was to me. Yes. And hard earned you know, too. <laughs> it's it's funny because the meat's gone. I found I have two femur bones of that bear left in my yep. freezer. Yep. So I'm gonna do marrow bones and they're gonna be oh, awesome. So and I yeah. Like I need to do them soon because I don't want them to go bad. But at the same time it's like such a special thing and I'm not you're holding that here. <laughs> I'm not ready to say goodbye to the mm -hmm. last bit of meat mm -hmm. yet. Yep. Yep. So it's 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 hard because I want to do something special or sweet. But, you know, after that's gone, what's going to be left is that the hide that's in yeah. my main room. And when yeah. people look at that, you know, a lot of people are just going to see a tr trophy. Some people are going to see, oh, this is a symbol of your your ego or whatever. And for me, for as a hunter, it's a reminder of all of that stuff that went into that. And it's a reminder of taking accountability for that meat like that's you know and a part of that is i took a life to feed myself yeah. and i want that reminder that it does cost when i consume mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and appreciation for that process appreciation for that animal you know i mean i feel like every time i harvest it's a moment where that animal gives its life to you and how are you going to honor that process by utilizing everything you can from it so that nothing goes to waste, so that you know the connection that you have to it? Because it's not something to take lightly. You know, it's like whenever I harvest a deer, for example, like I'll always put a mouthful of grass in its mouth, like after I harvest, you know, for whatever the journey is that it has on its neck, right. um, you know, next bed. And, and I think, you know, the first thing any animal, any harvest is like, thank you. Thank you for your life. Thank you. You know, I understand I put a lot of time and effort and sweat equity and all of these things into this. And also like that was an animal's life and that's a big deal. And, you know, to be able to utilize as much as you can from it, you know, is a way to really like complete that cycle and, and honor the animal in the best way possible as well. Yeah. And I think of that too, even just from the pragmatic side of the less wasteful you are with that animal the longer it's going to take before you have to go harvest another, you know, very true. So very you're doing true. that thing. Like I know that when it comes down to my turkeys, every scrap of that Turkey mm -hmm. gets used. I mean, I, I leave very, very, very little for, you know, the compost pile or the crows, depending on how you want to look at yeah. it because, yeah. and I, I have this kind of like personal goal that I want to learn how to utilize more and more each time so i'm always trying to find well, what about this part how do i use this what about this part how do i use this and i've discovered mm -hmm. some really cool 
recipes as a result of that. So that's yeah. that's my personal challenge to every hunter. And I'm at the point where I think tanning might be the next thing that I have to learn how to do. Yep. So I, I might yep. need to talk to you about how Absolutely. that <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know, that's a um, that's quite the conversation, too, because I've had mixed bag on people with regards to information about harvesting and tanning and such. Some people are very open about it and they will share every bit of knowledge that they have. And, you know, that's kind of my mindset is if if I had people take the time to teach me, I am more than willing to help. I understand it's my business. And I also understand that, you know, it's bigger than me. Right. And so right. in order for this to to really make a broad impact, I am more than happy to to pass that information along. Some people are very close to, you know, home on, on what they want to share because they don't want people trade taking secret. over their business. Yeah. <laughs> trade secrets. And, you know, and I get that. I respect that as well. I just for me, my my mentality is, you know, I mean, it's it's like makes me think I, I talk about this every once in a while is Fern Gully right at the end of the movie. It says for our children and our children's children. And that's really what a lot of this is, is it's creating a foundation so that there is, you know, oration and, um, you know, written word passed down to generations so that they can learn these things. And, you know, I think it goes along with what you're talking about with the cooking and sharing things, too, because for me, you know, part of the processing and butchering and um, preparing all the meals and stuff, I'll ask friends or people that maybe haven't had exposure to wild game. And, you know, say, hey, can I prepare a meal for you with this? And then we talk about, you know, the things that like got to it. And it's not even just a, you know, a, a raw, raw, like, you know, this was the hunt. And it was just, you know, such a, it's not like that. It's like this animal provided its life. And I would like to share that. And what does it look like? How does that, how does that experience play out? And how does that meal taste? And then what you mentioned, even with the, uh, we talked a little bit briefly initially about like sunscreen and stuff in Hawaii. You know, a lot of what I'm finding in people is they just don't know. It's not that they're against things. It's education. It's teaching people in a way that, you know, really brings people to the table. And I really try, especially this is one of the big things from my degree was, you know, to avoid an us versus them mentality. As soon yes. as you get into that mindset, it just puts people on defense and it creates this, you know, separation where people don't even want to have the conversation, you know, and as somebody who really cares about the environment and is a hunter and conservationist, it's that line that I have to walk to say, you know, I want these ecosystems to continue and I want there to be understanding of like the role that animals play in the ecosystems. And I'm also a hunter. Like I rely on this food source for my livelihood. So, you know, businesses and in the freezers for the winter to come. So having that conversation to be like, you know, let's like open the door to talk about these things, I think is a very valuable thing. And I think that's that's a really great segue. Real quick, we'll touch on the the sunscreen thing because I didn't know. This is kind of interesting. So apparently yeah. the aerosol sunscreens do damage to the coral reefs in your area. So it's important that people either use the other ones or that they go swimming earlier in the day so they don't have yep. to get that sunscreen on there and get burned to perdition because apparently in Hawaii obviously the sun is very intense and people don't quite expect to get yeah yeah we try to avoid <laughs> yeah aerosols avoid aerosols and also uh you know now there are a lot of ones that are labeled as reef safe they 
don't have oxybenzones and other things in them, which is much better for the reef system. And like you mentioned early in the day is a really good thing too. And they also have rash guards. You know, they're just long sleeve UV shirts that you can wear. Every bit of that you can do is important because the coral reefs, for example, like, you know, they, su- they support, you know, a plethora of life. Within so much life. Yeah. The, yeah. The ocean. And so you don't have any coral, then you're not going to have any ability for all of these other animals to, you know, be a part of it, which it doesn't matter what the ecosystem is. It's this trophic cascade. Everything is intertwined and it all plays a role. So how can we as humans understanding we're going to we're going to have to mitigate you know, risk. Like that's just right. part of having human intervention in wildlife. You know, you can't really, I mean, and we'll talk about the preservationist conservationist thing too, but like you can't really assume that there's not going to be any sort of impact now because the humans are here and we're going to continue to grow. And those are pieces that are, you know, pretty much inevitable at this point, but right. how can we mitigate those things to the best of our ability? And I think a lot of that's knowledge. It's just teaching people, you know, I did outreach specialist stuff in uh, Maui for quite a long time as well. And it was with uh, tourists at hotels and I would teach people, you know, random things about marine life and the ocean and, you know, the sunscreen and all these different facets of of how the, the interconnections work. And most of it, people just had no idea. It wasn't that they were trying to be ignorant. It wasn't that they were trying to go and you know, spray stuff all over or, you know, go stand on coral or whatever the things they're just like, we had no idea. We just come to a beautiful place and this is what we think we're supposed to do. So, you know, the hope is if we can approach it from that way and really try to have a seat at the table, I think there's a lot more likelihood to be able to create dynamic conversations that are going to move towards common goals. You know, I mean, I think we all have very common goals about what we want, which is We want ecosystems in perpetuity. We want them to be healthy. We want to be able to harvest meat. We want to be able to have healthy oceans so we can get fish. We want to be able to, you know, live off the land and also like with the land, you know, and I think if we have the ability to keep that big picture in mind, it's going to be a lot easier that to prevent, you know, this us versus them mentality because there are a lot of commonalities. Which I think brings us to to Washington State. And and that's yeah. also part of the reason why I had you on is because you don't just have your experience in Hawaii. You kind of split your time between Hawaii and Washington State, which is cool. Correct. I like that Thank you've you. <laughs> got like a dual purpose life. I'm just yep. stuck here in my little area, but I, I like <laughs> it. It suits me. Uh, yeah. But what I want to talk about is in Washington, obviously, we're having that the conversation right now, especially in regards to the uh, conservation draft policy, where we are looking at essentially the redefinition of the word conservation. And I think a lot of hunters, myself included, are very concerned that conservation is being redefined with a significantly more preservationist slant mm-hmm. and my my personal opinion on it is when a commissioner tells me that nobody knows what conservation means and i can look up in the webster's dictionary that conservation means the prevention of a wasteful use of a resource that sounds good to me i think mm-hmm. we could keep mm-hmm. that personally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but let's break down a little bit that that preservationist mentality versus the conservationist mentality because it does seem like you you started on one end of the spectrum you've kind of shifted Mm -hmm. 
to not necessarily all the way to the other, but a, a much more holistic yes. mindset. And I would love yes. to know how you bridged that gap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about my like childhood growing up, I was not exposed a lot to hunting or to wild game or, I mean, I had very little knowledge on that. I knew that I spent a lot of time in the woods. I knew that I really, you know, loved wildlife and, you know, nature was just an intrinsic part of, of my upbringing. And at the same time, you know, I think a lot of that journey starts with the sustainability degree and getting that degree. My emphasis was in natural resource management. Some people went into energy, some went into waste, you know, et cetera. I knew from day one that it was going to be in natural resources. And I also knew that in order to have that seat at the table, I was going to have to have, you know, a holistic approach to things, which made me open the door to what does that mean? How do I get myself involved? And how do I really look at the various perspectives that go into this? And so, you know, as a Washington state native, you know, I started going, okay, well, predominantly I've, I've hunted, uh, you know, ungulates and knowing that Washington has a pretty color, colorful, like taste on what different predators and other things you can hunt out here. I wanted to learn more and like, what is it that these animals do in the ecosystems? How do we really have the conversation on preservation versus conservation? Preservation being leave the ecosystems basically as they are in perpetuity, try to continue to, you know, have them support themselves in the way that is very little interference from humans. As we mentioned before, hands off as much as possible. Yeah. As we mentioned before, that's not necessarily as realistic with the fact that we have human intervention in general. And now you're adding the subsistence, especially subsistence lifestyle. You know, I mean, trophy hunting is one thing, but for me, I think a lot of that focus is on on food. It's food security, right? Most of the people that are like harvesting, you know, they're doing it because they're trying to fill their freezers. So to have that, you know, mindset being in a holistic space of saying, okay, well, we want to be able to, to fill our freezers, but we also don't want to degrade the environment so much that, uh, you know, we don't have this resource in the future. And, and it's a very difficult line to walk because when I think of sustainability, it's funny, they ask the same thing at the beginning, like, how do you define sustainability? Like, what is sustainability? You know, and it's kind of this buzzword and you hear people talking about it, but like, what does it actually mean? Conservation sim similar. Yeah. And for me, it's like keeping and regenerating. It's not even just like sustaining, right? It's regenerating ecosystems in perpetuity so that there are resources for the future. That means that we have to be aware of extraction. That means that we're going to have wildlife conflict interface. That means that we're going to have, you know, people that are on differing perspectives of like where they get their food, uh, you know, security from. I've had people contact me and, you know, I don't know about where you're sourcing your food. Just go to the grocery store, this and that. I'm like, to me, that's a much, you know, much bigger bear to, to address, you know, pun intended than in, you know, in wildlife. And I also want it to be, you know, very uh you know appropriately allocated that i myself am not a huge predator hunter i really believe that animals in the ecosystem uh play a vital vital role and that's as a whole and looking at things that, holistically actually. and yeah. i agree with that as a predator hunter yeah yeah um, and i mean yeah my other half he he's a bear hunter you know he like there's 
I understand that there's value in being able to do these things. I also think that, you know, you have to look at the ecosystem as a whole. So, and, and as us as a part of it, not the top of it. And that's that, this little caveat, you know, that I want to mention. I know there's a whole lot of stuff that I don't necessarily agree with the WDFW. And there's some that I do. They asked, a, they sent a survey out recently about um, CWD, which we'll talk about here in a little bit as well. But they sent it out and they had uh, two, they looked almost like food pyramid pictures. And they had one food pyramid picture that had humans at the top and then, you know, mountains and ocean or mountains and waters and uh, trees and animals and stuff below it. And then they had one where it was the ecosystem as a whole and humans were a part of it. And I think I associate more with the humans being a part of it versus us, you know, playing the role of, you know, of God, <laughs> you know, to oversee everything and that everything should be underneath us. I think we have to look at it holistically. We have to look at it as a system. And if you use animals as indicator species, then, you know, you're able to look and say, okay, so for example, with, you know, the, the spring bear, and I, this is going to be very, I'm, you know, go, go right into the belly of the beast I'm used here, to it. But, <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, with that understanding, like, look at all of the intrinsic ties that are part of this. So what do bears naturally do in the ecosystem? You know, they're great recyclers, like the amount of nutrition that they actually process, you know, when they consume things versus how much they actually help, you know, propagate future, um, you know, flora and such with what they eat. What are they doing in terms of, you know, hibernation things? And how is that impacting our science studies? Yeah, they're for, the, you know, space honestly, travel? bears are kind of like the trash men and yeah. the, the gardeners of yeah. the forest, yeah. in, in my opinion, like. Seeing yep. what they do as far as how they help break down rotten logs because yep. they're looking for termites. They're doing something yep. selfish there, but yep. they're helping break that down into further, sur you know, surface or sorry. Yeah. Further soil. Yeah. Yeah. And, true. No, very true. And when it comes to that, I think there is a bit of a mistaken mentality. And and admittedly, there are definitely some hunters out there that typify this so i want to be clear that i don't speak for all hunters i speak for myself and i speak for right a lot of the the hunters that i talk to but there's this mistaken mentality that hunters think that predators are the bad guys and that yeah. we just want to kill them all and yep. for me when i got into bear hunting one thing that i know that that came out of that is I wanted to make sure that bear habitat, which in my opinion is the best habitat for all the other animals. Yeah. I learned way more about hunting everything else I hunt because I hunt bear. 100%. But that habitat needs to be protected as do the bears. Yeah. I wanted bears to have a position in the ecosystem and a position in uh, our world for you know, time immemorial. And I wanted yeah. to start fighting for that because of my relationship to them. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do want to throw, throw that out there just because I, yeah. I do know that that perception it is out there that, you know, we're just trying to, to kill them to, I don't know, boost, boost ungulate numbers as high yeah. as possible. You hear that whatnot. all the time. And and admittedly, that is a part of management goals here mm -hmm. and there. And mm -hmm. and I agree with you that we are part of an ecosystem, although I would say that our biological role as human beings, because we have the ability to plan long term and because we have 
for better or worse, become the dominant creature on the planet, our role could be that of stewardship. That could be our biological role is to help foster things. But in order to do that well, we have to do it in a very holistic way, which includes managing ourselves, which is difficult. It's probably more difficult than managing wildlife and much more morally complex, frankly. Yeah. The... I got off on a, a tangent here. Going back to the the preservationist, conservationist mentality, I, I absolutely agree with you that I think that there are end game goals that should match. I mean, I think that the the other side of the aisle, what whatever you want to call them when it comes to hunters versus whoever, you know, oftentimes we call them varying perspectives, yeah. Various varying perspectives. The question that I wanted to ask you is that when we're talking about balancing those things out and making sure that people have a seat on the table, how do you see a good balance between making sure that everybody has a seat on the table and making sure that the people who have the most impact from these decisions have a little bit more of a say? At least that's my opinion. Meaning like the, 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 the community, right? Because yeah, 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 that's, that's a good question. You know, I, I think that number one, when it comes to having conversations and having collaboration, you hit the nail on the head with the stewardship piece, right? Commonalities, unite in commonalities. So the goal is, is that we want these things last in perpetuity we would like to be able to maintain our way of life which includes hunting and it also includes having healthy habitat and ecosystems engagement is huge you know and so having a collective body that you know i mean right now okay we're talking about like commissioners and such right that support varying perspectives i think is really important i can understand how it's really tough when you feel like your voice isn't being heard you feel like you're getting talked over. You feel like you're expressing things that are important to you and they're not necessarily being honored. And I think that is in part what's happening right now with the commission, you know, is people are saying, hey, we understand that, you know, there needs to be best science, right? I am, as a scientist at heart, I 100% believe that, you know, we need to have more funding that's going to go into the science so that we can do that. You know, in, in doing research and looking at bear census studies and looking at, you know, predator prey con- conflict and looking at habitat restoration and looking at conservation measures, like all of these things that, you know, there are, you know, peer reviewed articles and scientific journals and all these things that are coming out about them, you know, really some of it is lacking, right? So, and I'm not saying don't, don't hunt because I, I'm a hunter. I want to continue being able to do it. I'm saying let's come together and say, okay, what do you need to make this happen? All right, you want more information? Let's go get more information. Let's say, you know, we're working with timber companies, right? Timber companies have all these new shoots. You're talking about bears and such eating off of, you know, all the new shoots that are coming up, right? They're perpetuating that cycle with this method of extraction because people are reliant on all of the wood that they want from the timber companies, right? And then they get upset at the bears because they're coming in and doing what bears naturally do, or they're coming, the ungulates are coming in and they're eating the stuff too. So, okay, what do we do to decrease our reliance on some of those those habitats so we can foster native habitat restoration so that we can have 
more ungulate populations that are healthy so that we can have more bear populations that are healthy. You know, a lot of the census studies they're doing are saying, okay, well, we looked in like the North Cascades, for example, and, you know, there's X number of bears per, you know, 100 square kilometers, but that's one area. And putting a one size fits all um, across you know, placing, the entire state. Yeah. Is not, it's not going to help the bears. It's not going to help people hunting. It's not going to help the ecosystems. So, what do we do to kind of shift that mindset to say, okay, you know, like I know you had Mandy on the other day and she was talking about the overpasses and things like that. All of that stuff is huge. A lot of the habitat restoration, I worked with an um, organization called Women on the Wing. They work for Pheasants Forever out in Eastern Washington, Walla Walla area. And we did, um, you know, some hunting stuff out there and they were talking about a bunch of habitat restoration they're doing for grouse and pheasants and things, which is awesome. Like those are the boots on the ground thing that you can do. And also like have the conversations, bring this stuff to the commissioners and say, this is the stuff that we want to work on, you know, because I think when we get bogged down by, you know, the minutia, not to say that it's not important because I think it is very valuable. But to have a seat at the table, we have to try to find common ground. As long as we're doing, they did this, they said this, he said this, I did that. Like, it's not going to help the, the ecosystem. And the, the bottom line is we want to continue to hunt. We want animals in perpetuity. We want healthy rivers and streams. We want, you know, trees. Like, we're going to have to be considering oh, a lot of other things, though. I would much rather be spending my time that I spend dealing with the commission working on how we could restore habitat for yeah. western gray squirrels in washington because yeah. i would like to see them recover again selfishly i would like them to, to recover to the point where i could hunt them in washington yeah. because one yeah. i love squirrels yeah and two i i i mean i just would like to see more of their population and i want to see them them dealt with but you know when you get hit with this this huge push that is essentially looking like oh your entire way of life is suddenly going to become off the table yeah you know of course people are going to focus on on that and mm -hmm. yeah i would i would much rather be spending my time working on the the various different habitat projects with them i'd much rather be spending my time figuring out how in my particular area in northeast washington we have a very rural population we mm -hmm. have pretty close to the densest i know we have the densest cougar population i think we have close to the densest black bear population in the area mm -hmm. how to avoid conflicts you know and yeah. i know a huge a huge part of that would actually be trying to figure out how to get the government around here to subsidize just regular trash pickup yeah yeah that would yeah that would end a lot of conflict problems mm -hmm. in my area just because people are you know they hurt for cash around here and yes a a hundred dollar a month trash pickup fee is actually expensive enough that a lot of people yeah. aren't gonna aren't gonna do it so they're gonna have a big trash pile that they take out once every or burn or burn right which isn't so great for the environment either yeah. But, you know, I also I also respect the economics of it. You know, yeah. if we want yeah. people to behave in certain ways as a whole, you can't just appeal to their better instincts. You actually have to make it the yep. most appealing option. Yep. <laughs> you bring up a very valid point too. you know, in the financials. Right. I mean, that comes. 
that comes right in line with talking about, you know, predator prey conflict or like depredation tags or, you know, harvests that happen on livestock, right? You get a lot of people that really their big concerns are, hey, we've worked real hard to get these animals to be able to go make a profit off of them for our livelihoods, you know, and then we have some, you know, depredation that happens. And what are we going to do? Like our instinct is this animal caused this thing, like, you know, get rid of them. So part of that subsidy, you know, could also be including, you know, and I know there's some plans and I've, you know, done some, some research on some of the, you know, articles and such that are coming out on, on compensation for farmers, ranchers, et cetera. But it's, it's working in line with the environment versus, you know, just making it completely like, we can't do it at all. And you're right. You're going to have to have help. You're going to have to have help. And it's very easy. Not easy. I think it's more relatable for people on the Western side of the state, you know, or a little bit removed from some of this day-to-day activity where, you know, you're talking about, Hey, we've got like a problem animal that we're dealing with right now. You know, that's like right here in our face, we have to deal with this. And I am, I am a believer that if you have problem animals that need to be removed, remove them. You know, it's like coyotes. I've talked about them before too. You know, there's a vacuum effect. If you just start taking out mass numbers of them, they're going to reproduce very rapidly in even bigger numbers. Yeah. The reason we have coyotes, the reason we have coyotes in every state of the union is because we tried to eradicate them and their biological response to that is was proliferation. Yeah. Which is like, when you look at the biology of coyotes, like it really makes me, me respect and like them a whole yeah. lot more yeah 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 and if but you have yeah, problems remove it that's fine <laughs> i actually try really hard unfortunately somebody took out one of them at one point and i don't know i don't know what happened i didn't ask in this particular yeah. case but i had a, a group of coyotes on my property that kept rearing young every year and the only thing they hammered was grouse i have yeah. chickens on my yeah. property i had stuff on my property but they just they were grouse specialists. They yeah. did what they were going to do. And I kept those coyotes on my property and, and made it a point not to, to mess with them and made it a yeah. point to kind of tell my neighbors, I'm trying not to mess with these ones because, you know, they've got a stasis there that they've, yeah, yeah they're not messing and with they're us. Gonna they keep, know. They're going to keep yeah. the coyotes out of the area that are a problem. Yep. Problem. And they're so raising their young to not yeah. do the same thing right versus the ones that are problem animals and they're raising their young to be like hey this is opportunist yep i'm take these so things. you know i didn't want those coyotes to be messed with in this particular case flip side of the coin right now i'm hunting i'm hunting a depredation bear i've got a bear yes. that yep. at some point is going to be a wdfw damage control call because yep. this bear has yep. learned that it can break into buildings for food yeah yeah it's yep. it's been killing livestock in the area for like four years yep and that's and, the yep and those are the because, ones that i understand yeah yeah and in my case if i if i have a tag rural citizen have a tag where i can just go hunt that utilizing legal means i can mm-hmm. go hunt that and that bear is going to end up in my freezer and it's going to feed yes. my community yes and you're going to use it. Yeah. Whereas if the WDFW ends up having to do it because the commission decides to to take that hunt away from us. Yeah. That means that that animal is going to get run by hounds yeah. or trapped. Yeah. And then it's going to get shot and taken to the landfill at taxpayer yeah. expense. And Which I is, just consider that to be so wasteful. To me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's lunacy <laughs> to me. I don't I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. You know, so and I think that is the line, right? You know, right. That's, that's where you, you know, and I and I understand, I think, you know, it's important to recognize too, like I'm not coming from a place of naivety. I'm coming from a place, you know, of of experience and, you know, not only just being a citizen of Washington State, but you know, being a hunter and, you know, being a conservationist to say that there are times and places where this is very important. And I don't think that leaning completely towards this preservationist mindset is ethical. I don't think that it's, you know, morally right for the animals either. If they're going to go up, end up in the landfill, like that's not, you know, that's definitely not appropriate and it's not helpful for the ecosystem either. It's a, it's a hard thing. Contribute to climate change. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, you, you were mentioning earlier about, uh, you know, the, the densities of animals too in areas. And so, you know, Northeastern Washington, from my experience of being out there is like very rural, you know, very remote. And when you think about habitat, like that's some of the best habitat in the state for these animals. So you're probably going to have higher densities of animals there with that being said, that means you're probably going to have some more interface with wildlife as well. You know, and so you have the people that have livestock guardian, uh, guardian dogs, you have people that, you know, can do some fencing, but you think realistically, like with, with ranching on big acreages and such, you're not realistically going to be able to put in miles and miles of fence, you know, or you have range riders that go out and they're trying to do their best to help protect the well, herds. Well, and, like, and the more you do that, the more you create habitat segmentation too, which is yes, a whole different yes. set of, of problems. And that comes down to we do have a human footprint. And yep. if we can figure out ways to allow that footprint to work with the ecosystem as a whole, I think we're much better off, but a lot, a large part of that is making sure that we maintain tools that help us manage conflict, help us manage problems and, and also prevent them in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think, I just, I think it's a multi-pronged approach that, that has a lot of, of good solutions that need to be implemented without necessarily forgetting where we came from. It was at this point I decided to cut this episode, so stay tuned for later this week. I'll drop a bonus episode where Marina turned the tables and started asking me some interesting questions. Stay tuned.